0: I'm Rachel Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm
1: Emily Jashinsky.
2: And I'm Ben Weingarten.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or you know anywhere else. So welcome back, everybody. Um, we have uh, a bunch of topics we're going to cover today, including some breaking news um, about the Sussman verdict, which Ben is going to cover for us at the end of the show. Uh, But before we get to that, Emily's going to talk about um, some sort of woke Stasi double jeopardy going on at Princeton. Um, I'm going to talk about Big Tech's latest gambit all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, Josh is going to fill us in a little bit more about the fallout from police behavior at in Uvalde, Texas. And then, like I said, we'll circle around to Ben, um, who will give us uh, <laughs> some insight on the latest on Sussman. So uh, with that, I will kick it off to Emily.
1: Yeah, I guess we'll sort of start in the abstract and move to the granular um, over the course of the show today. I want to start by talking about the saga of Joshua Katz. He's a classic professor at Princeton or was a classics professor at Princeton, who, after a years long saga, um, has been fired. Tenured professor fired from Princeton. um, And the school says it's over his failure to he was fired over his failure to. properly disclose a consensual relationship he'd had with a student, um, and that came out during a Title IX investigation, but I think what's really important is the Title IX investigation itself happened because he committed wrongthink, because Joshua Katz, um, who'd been teaching at Princeton for a long time, he's a classics professor, first committed wrongthink, and then what happened is the price he paid was this Title IX investigation, and was this uh, digging up everything, just scrutinizing everything he he had ever done and using it to push him out of academia. His wife, Penned a really fascinating piece for Barry Weiss's Substack. Um, what Princeton did to my husband, I think, was the title of it, in which she sort of goes through all of this. She walks through, obviously, from a very biased uh, but helpful, detailed perspective, his career, um, and you know how their own relationship evolved. She was a student of his, but they didn't start uh, to become romantically intertwined until after she had graduated. Um, so all of this is to say the reason I wanted to talk about this case study is because it shows, you know, the impossibility or the seeming impossibility of getting ourselves out of this rut, this intellectual rut um, that we're in, because what Princeton did was uh, hold his scalp up, basically, and they would never use that language because they would get fired for wrong think. But they're they're holding up the scalp and saying, this is the price you pay. Um, for you know, committing wrong things. He basically had originally just written a piece for Col- Quillette that got him in trouble, um, pushing back on some of the uh, like very woke demands for racial justice at Princeton. He agreed with some of them, disagreed with others, was called, was accused of flagrant racism by somebody who was a student he had once helped. Um, and so all this is to say, if you want to push back on anything, your entire life Will be nitpicked and subjected to scrutiny um, that you know. I'm sure he would. He would say he may he did something wrong uh, in the early 2000s in the relationship that got him in trouble. Um, in fact, I know he would because his wife said she told he told her as much. Um, but to to use it in this way uh, to punish somebody for having the audacity to engage in a good faith debate about. Um, yeah, without you know any uh, anything like a good faith debate, you can't even do that. Um, and our our uh, helpful producer says here, you know, he was he was punished, and indeed he was. He, he was suspended for a year without pay. So all of this is to say, he paid the price. He paid a reasonable price for that relationship um, and for that consensual relationship. And all of this is just about the wrong thing. So how can we possibly move past this when the price is your job? And I submit this question to you with one additional uh, add-on, which is, does the Joshua Katz's, does that embolden others in his situation? Are we heading into an era where people will be sort of newly emboldened to live not by lies? Is that where we are now, or are we going in the other direction because the price is so, so steep?
0: There was one detail in this story that really troubled me and Emily, you might have to correct me if I'm, if I'm missing, if I'm mischaracterizing it, but based on the substack that his wife put out, it seemed like a lot of this sort of reevaluation of something that had already been, already been punished was pushed by the students themselves. Like there was a piece put into the, whatever the student newspaper is at, at Princeton, that was so like, flagrantly violative of journalistic norms and standards that I think someone even in the New York Times like called it out like this should never have been published and that was sort of fueling a lot of the you know fatwa against him for lack of a better term and you know to me this speaks of a a really disturbing trend that you constantly are seeing now in universities where like the adults are not in charge you know you have these sort of students demanding uh a head on a pike based on, you know, feelings of, you know, microaggression or whatever it is, you know, however they're characterizing it. And someone needs to be the adult and just be like, this is not how we treat people, right? Something that he's admitted that was wrong. He was punished for. There is nothing more to do. You are actively just trying to ruin this person's life, but more and more, that's the price you have to pay. And there was a, um, I just want to quote from his wife, Substack, because I thought this was so illustrative of the incident. And I'm quoting. She writes, and then there is the chilling message Princeton has sent to Joshua's colleagues and to academics everywhere. Step out of line politically and we will find a way to bring you down. Show us the man and we'll show you the crime end quote. And, you know, again, I just come back to this idea and we've talked about this theme before where so many of us mock or did mock what happened in universities, you know, as just a joke, right? These are kids being stupid. And then the real world, they'll get mugged by reality. Well, no, they're, they're exporting this to the world. They will now run your HR department. And what's happening in universities is a foreshadowing of what's to come in our corporate class and our leadership class. And so somehow uh, I think this has to be stopped. And I think that's, this is as much cultural as it is, you know, a, you know what, how we talk about addressing it from a policy standpoint.
3: Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this story, so I'll try to keep them fairly quick. Um, f- first of all, there's a few op-eds I'd like to flag. So Joshua Katz himself had a really, I thought, very, very good piece in the Wall Street Journal, I think the day after Princeton made its final decision. The way that he kind of frames his argument is in terms of kind of cultural double jeopardy. I'm going to get back to that in just a second there. Um, On a shameless self-promotion plug, uh, my friend Paul DeQuinoy has now had two excellent op-eds for Newsweek's op-ed section, kind of tracing this saga. So I would encourage you to check out those two pieces as well. But going back to the way that Joshua Katz framed his own kind of sordid affair in the Wall Street Journal here, he kind of uses the rhetoric of double jeopardy. And my takeaway for that is I kind of trace a direct line from what happened to Brett Kavanaugh with respect to innocent until proven guilty until this. In each instance, there is there is one kind of form of argument that looks at whether it's innocent until proven guilty or kind of double jeopardy and says, oh, that's a purely kind of legalistic procedure. That's purely a civil law, common law, natural law, U.S. Constitution, whatever. It has nothing to do with kind of the way we should operate as far as being decent human beings. But back in Kavanaugh, I I certainly personally rejected that. I think a lot of conservatives, I think we should we should reject it here, too, whether it's kind of innocent until, until proven guilty, whether it's kind of this notion of double jeopardy. These are not just kind of black letter, abstruse, arcane legal doctrines. These are basic norms for how humans ought to behave with one another, for how humans ought to comport with one another. And to Emily's point. He did serve his time. He was literally punished for a year without pay. So this is 100 percent double jeopardy. If you actually think that Princeton is firing him for what he did with his consensual relationship years ago and not for his very accurate statements in the aftermath of the George Floyd riots going back two years now, then, you know, I have a house in Wichita to sell you. That's obviously just not what's going on here. But, you know, this uh, I, look, I, I, the, the last thing I'll say on this, I don't want to filibuster for too long is. This, I think, should just accelerate kind of what Rachel is saying, the need for conservatives to kind of ultimately effectuate a full and total divorce from the American higher education system. And whether that means kind of public policy reforms that channel more money and kind of channel more talent away from the universities into trade schools, vocational training, community colleges, things like that, or ideally, whether we kind of get more, um, you know, more donor dollars to build up at least some of our own institutions. Uh, Real, real quick, I I was at a Beckett Fund, their Black Tie Gala here in South Florida last Thursday. They gave their annual prize award to the president of this small Catholic school in North Dakota I never even heard of, University of Mary, I think it was called. Um, and the president kind of won the Beckett Fund's annual award. He, he was awesome. It was a great speech. It was super based, like totally anti-woke. We need more universities like that, whether they're um, you know, strictly sectarian, secular or whatnot.
2: Yeah, so I agree that there's both a cultural and policy aspect to this. Uh, We have a rotten culture, which is the only, uh, which was the fertile soil for a neo Maoist anti cultural revolution that we've seen. uh, Ironically, in this case, which it was accelerated by the summer of 2020, the BOM riots, and so it's fitting that. Katz's head is on a pike as a consequence of comments associated with that, because this is the natural end of that neo-Maoist revolution that we've been uh, suffering under for the last two plus years. So I think on the one hand, it's rotten culture within these campuses. But on the other hand, there is a policy element to play here. So Josh raises one aspect, obviously, which is competition from without. There are ways in which, particularly of course, public institutions, if the state is going to be literally invested in and overseeing those institutions, legislators can impose and implement policy changes uh, that do begin to counter the rancid policies and prescriptions in these places. Uh, And then of course, there's the donors within these schools as well, the private institutions Uh, on top of the fact that of course, many private institutions of course, get governmentally handed out privileges. So there are a lot of different levers that can be pulled here, but at the end of the day, this comes back to what kind of society Do we want to live in? Are we living in? Are are people raising their children in to believe that people ought to be destroyed for holding views that you disagree with? Because at the end of the day, that's where we are. This is obviously all in bad faith. And the chilling effort, and and I think this is a a point well taken by uh, Mr. Katz, Professor Katz's wife, that's what this is all about. This is to send a signal to anyone you step out of line. You will be destroyed. And we see this now in every single strategically significant influential aspect of our society. It has to stop. And there has to be real consequences to that neo-Maoist behavior. Until there are, this is only going to continue, accelerate, and get far worse.
1: And just before we transition, I'll add, this has been happening for years, and that's the problem. It's it's why, it's how we ended up with a Joshua Katz, because it's been happening all over the country for years and years. Um, this just happens to be a high-profile, extreme example.
0: Well, speaking of more censorship, let's talk about big tech, um, my favorite censorship topic. Uh, so... For people paying attention to this, you know, while Congress has sort of fiddled on the big tech question, the states have been very actively aggressing on the issue. And there are two sort of marquee laws. Um, one push by Texas and one pushed by Florida to try and address sort of the censorship angle of big tech, and I'm just going to focus on the Texas law today because that is one where we've actually seen, you know, obviously any attempt to legislate the state level, big tech swoops in and tries to kill it immediately. Well, this one they've been unsuccessful in doing in in in, in crushing. Um, the Fifth Circuit recently uh, ruled against big tech when it said, "Look, you know, we're going to allow this." Texas law to move forward, Um, you know, because Big Tech had demanded an injunction. They said, no, we're going to let this move forward. Big Tech immediately, uh, through their trade association net choice, appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, They made an emergency application to the Supreme Court on par with, you know, uh, execution stays, because that's how how critical they think that this law (laughs) is against them. And I want to make just three high-level points about it. You know, I'll leave it to Josh to get into the legal weeds if he wants, but I think it's it's an important issue to discuss for a couple of reasons. Um, The law, the Texas law itself, all it says is that big tech platforms cannot engage in viewpoint discrimination um, on the basis of, you know, they're effectively common carriers. Um, It recognizes the role they play in facilitating public discourse. And it says, look, you have to treat all commerce equally. Now it does say you can still ban for content Right. And what that means is, you know, content already illegal under federal law, like incitement to violence, uh, things like that, things already legal under Section 230, harassment. You can ban categories of content, but you cannot discriminate based on viewpoint. The example I love to use is the difference between uh, nudity and naturism, right? You can ban people from posting nude pictures, but you can't ban advocates of naturism from talking about how much they love, like going to beaches or whatever, right? So there's a difference here. And it's been fascinating to watch this for a couple of reasons. First, I think it really exposes the legal loophole or the legal ambiguity uh, that big tech has been exploiting for, for decades now, which is to say, oh, well, under Section 230, we're not publishers. We're not liable for what our users say. If kids are being sex trafficked on our platform, it's not our responsibility. And what they're arguing now, which is that, oh, yes, we are definitionally First Amendment actors with an editorial right to censor whatever we want. They're literally arguing contradictory points, and the Texas law and uh, the Texas uh, AG's office has been, I think, very good about pointing this out. You can't have it both ways. And so whether or not the Supreme Court's going to weigh on that, in on that question, I don't know. But I think it's a very important um, contradiction to expose here. But the second thing that's been fascinating to watch about this is if you've ever actually seen a corporate interest engage on all cylinders in Washington, this is how it works. Um, Big tech has been planning for this moment for decades. You know, as soon as this law uh, made it past the Fifth Circuit, you saw every uh, nonprofit group they pay in Washington cite the same Talking points in op-eds all over the city. You saw a pile of amicus briefs immediately filed with the courts. Um, while myself and a couple of others in sort of the ragtag band of tech skeptics on the right were left like completely scrambling. Could we couldn't even find a law firm that wasn't conflicted out because everybody represents Google in Washington. Um, so it's just been you know the David versus Goliath scenario of taking on the tech giants has been very evident. Even in the fact that they appealed to the Supreme court shadow docket. And I'm interested in Josh's take on this as well, because to me, this is again, just it's arrogant, but it's also desperate because what they're trying to avoid here again is not egregious injury. What they're trying to avoid is this law simply going forward. No one's ruled on the merits. They just don't want this law to go forward because what happens if it does discovery and what do we find out then how they actually moderate content. They, we find out how many times they've worked with the government to censor certain viewpoints, um, so I just kind of throw this out there. This has gone a little bit under the radar, I think, obviously because there are complex questions at at uh, at issue here. But I'm interested in everybody's thoughts, um, even to the point where you know NetChoice argued this is a slam dunk First Amendment case, but it's clearly not because it's been several weeks and the court has yet to say anything about it. So I'll open it up, and leave it there.
3: So I think. There's a lot to unpack there, obviously, but I guess what I'll choose to focus my particular comments here on is on the notion of the shadow docket in general. This is kind of an an in the weeds, kind of legally arcane topic that I think is starting to burst out into the open. And this case is a good example, I think, as to why it is important that, that they get out there. So to kind of ditch the legal nomenclature and just say what's going on here. So the standard way that a case gets obviously argued and decided at the United States Supreme Court is there are briefs from the parties, there are lots and lots of amicus briefs, depending on how, you know, uh, of of what import the case is. And then there's oral argument, of course, and then, you know, some time later, there will be a decision on the merits. The shadow docket is basically a way of expediting a decision without that full process. So the parties, depending on, um, you know, on what they subjectively deem how important the case is to issue a ruling for purposes of national unity, or whether it's like a national immigration border injunction or something like that, they will, they will massively expedite the timeline for briefing and they will generally decide without the benefit of oral arguments. So this has been kind of an issue that I think has attained a lot of attention from the Eagle Academy for the past five, six years, as, a, as a justices have devoted a higher and higher proportion of their cases to the shadow docket and not kind of the general merits docket. It's a fairly recent phenomenon. There's not like a long history of the Supreme Court kind of dividing its, its attention in this system. Uh, look, the obvious thing to say about this is that it's not the way that it should be done. Um, I mean, this this simply is just not the way that Supreme Court cases ought to be decided, and it kind of raises the question as to you know you, you know other questions of legitimacy, obviously that kind of that get raised when the justices are issuing a decision, especially with this kind of fictitious notion of judicial supremacy, which I've ranted about a million times before, where the justices what they say kind of binds the whole country as opposed to the parties to the lawsuit. So if we accept the fiction of judicial supremacy, I think it further militates against. The, prolif- the proliferation of the shadow docket. So I think if this case is really kind of raising kind of um, you know, the non-legal world, like the mainstream world's attention to the shadow docket, I think
2: it's valuable for that sake. All right, so I'll, I'll be brief here. I would commend everyone to read Phil Pamberger's piece in The Federalist. He wrote a really good op-ed about the strategy here, and I'll just quote a little bit from it briefly and then and turn it over to Emily. He says, why would the platforms based upon uh, his reading of their arguments here, make so many crudely erroneous or at least misleading statements to the Supreme Court and writes, the answer lies on what appears to be their strategy to bum rush the Supreme Court. The claims of irreparable harm in an emergency have no basis in fact because the relevant portions of the statute are without damages remedies. The platforms could easily just wait for private claims against them to wind their way through the regular process of the courts with time for detailed inquiry. But that's precisely what the platforms cannot afford. And he goes on to say, it's not just their arguments are weak, they're worried about discovery. If by claiming an emergency, they can elicit discouraging words from the court about the Texas law, the platforms can escape in depth discovery that would otherwise occur in private suits against platforms. So they seek accelerated special proceedings to avoid what eventually would be full discovery and to avoid careful scrutiny of their erroneous claims. And to get those fast moving proceedings they make specious claims of irreparable harm. It would be shameful for the Supreme Court to decide the constitutional questions in these circumstances. Emergency proceedings are no substitute for careful deliberation. What is needed is the ordinary and orderly due process of law. Speaks for itself. It's brazen what's happening here. It's readily apparent for all to see. What is big tech fear? The answer answers the question answers itself
1: yeah i mean that's exactly what i would say um and the benefits of some of these legal battles is as rachel mentioned just everything not everything but a lot of um, information being exposed that might sort of in a, a legal case narrowly be helpful to whatever company is is on the other end of this, but in the broader picture is like wildly unhelpful um, to their cause. And so the more we learn about the business practices and the lobbying practices of these companies, the less the public is going to care about the like uh, granular legal uh, nitpicking that the sort of libertarian tech defendants are breathlessly doing. Um, and I think that's as, and as helpful um, as anything. And I was just going through this case myself last week and kind of trying to understand it because I was editing a piece about it. Um, and I was just like amazed at some of the like libertarian pushback. Um, it was just to see the, the defenses of these companies be I mean, at this point in time, it just, it seems so completely bizarre to me, given that they're, crony capitalists um, who are having a negative effect not just on the markets but on the culture and so it's like a proxy war you know between like conservatives and libertarians i get it but i I actually honestly don't understand even from like a libertarian perspective like section 230 is a privilege conferred by the government it's not a god-given right to the corporations that are people my friends Um, and and so it, it just kind of to me, I, I genuinely think these are, are crony capitalist co- companies and like the libertarian the like if you care about a true sort of system of free enterprise and capitalism, you have to tend to the weeds. Um, and I, I just pushing back on efforts to do that as though it's a, a calling card for true libertarianism. I really don't understand.
3: Yeah, I mean, just to quickly wrap up on this and I'll transition to myself, I guess. Um, so, uh, The way that Philip Hamburger, Ben mentioned him, but the way that he has kind of phrased the common carrier session 230 argument, and I personally find it very compelling, the way that common carriage law traditionally works, going back to English common law, going back to Sir Matthew Hale, I mean, centuries and centuries ago, was that you would get some form of extra legal immunity in the case of kind of railroads or carriages or some sort of transportation, it was oftentimes extra legal tort immunity in exchange for a non-discrimination provision. So the basic argument that I think Phil Hamburger makes is that Section 230 is that carrot. There is just no stick, and that stick ought to co- come in the form of common carry regulation, which is basically what the Texas statute is trying to do. So, OK, let's transition. We can come back to that in final thoughts if we want to. So let's talk a little bit more about the Uvalde shooting and, and, and the aftermath of that, which we, of course, discussed a little bit last week when it was still, um, you know, when it was very much kind of still fresh in the minds of all of ours. And I think it's the story that's gonna be fresh in our minds for a ways to go, uh, just given the more that we learned about what happened there in in Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. So at the time we recorded this podcast last week, I'm not sure that we had all the information that we now have uh, about the conduct from the Uvalde police officers who were there on the scene and just kind of just, I didn't think we had the full timeline so long story short, so the shooter arrives at the school around roughly 11.30 a.m. or so. He was not ultimately taken down until close to 1 p.m. local time. I think it was roughly 12.50 p.m. or so. And it, it, for a few days, I mean, last Wednesday through Friday, when it seemed, when we were finally divulging all this information, I did like a little Twitter thread on it. it for a period of time, there literally seemed like each new revelation, each new headline was more galling, more appalling, more shocking to the conscience than the one before that. It really has made me viscerally angry in a way that I frankly have not been about a story in a long time, honestly. And again, part of that is biographical. My mother's an elementary school teacher. This stuff just really kind of hits home. But what what we now know is that at one point there were 19 One nine, 19 police officers standing basically outside the hallway who did not go in to take out the shooter. Uh, It it turns out that the agents who ultimately took the shooter down were Border Patrol agents. They were not police officers. They were from the Border Division of Border Patrol. They had gotten there. And if I have this story correctly, they basically spent a half hour following the instructions from the local police officers in charge on the ground, which at the time were confined to basically trying to shepherd children away from the frenzy. And then after about a half hour, these two agents, I think, basically kind of, again, y'all correct me if I'm wrong here, they basically kind of looked at one another and were like, what the hell are we doing here? I mean, like, there's an active shooter in there. Why are we not taking him out? And they went in and took him out. Look, I understand if you are... I I, I I kind of understand. I mean, I kind of understand if you are one person and what you have is like a 9 millimeter handgun and like you hear someone in there with, like a, with, with a rifle, you know, having some trepidation, obviously, when there are 19 police officers, 19, one nine, there is I, I'm sorry, there is just zero excuse whatsoever. And at, at a press conference last week after the facts started to come out here, Governor Greg, Greg Abbott used the word livid. He said he was livid. At the facts, as he as he learned as they came out, uh, Texas DPS, the Department of Public Safety, they have now formally said that the police acted irresponsibly and contrary to the way that they were supposed to act. The Biden DOJ has opened a federal investigation into what happened there. Normally speaking, when the federal DOJ, when the, when the DOJ opens investigation to police contact, you know the hairs in the back of my neck start to raise up a little bit. I kind of start thinking about kind of intersectionality and police brutality and all this total left wing garbage, and I do fear that there is possibly that element of this, obviously, because there are a lot of bad faith actors who try to glom on to all elements of police misconduct to defund the police, disarm the police, whatever. And I, and I, I personally like back the blue as far you know, as hard as basically anyone out there. I've done so repeatedly in lots of public debates, qualified immunity, you name it. But I think it is still incumbent even upon those of us like myself who are so consistent in defending the police to say that what happened here was bad. It appears to be very, very bad. And, you know, in one of my group chats, I mean, some of the solutions that were being floated out as to the proper remedy for some of these cowardly police officers, uh, you know, probably a little too un-PC for this particular podcast, but I I guess we could say that they were... uh, medieval solutions, you might say. Um, but surely we need some sort of accountability here. And I, I guess I just toss it open on, on that. What, what does and what should that accountability look like? I guess if you guys agree with me that it really is as bad as it seems to be.
1: I think there's a, uh, speaking of the timeline, the one thing that is just, I can't get out of my head, um, at, at worst, the drive from the Evaldi Police Department to Robb Elementary is six minutes. Um, And what happened is they got a 911 call that there was a gunman shooting, like he was was shooting at the in the area of the school at the funeral home across the street at 1130. The police do not arrive until 1144 and then don't end up in the school until four minutes after that. So how on earth the the crash was at eleven twenty eight. So at eleven thirty, there's a, a like a there's a nine one one call. So the police are aware of it. There's six minutes away. Just the people at the department, let alone the people that are dispatched around Duvalde. Um, so six minutes at absolute worst. That should be your response time here. You have seven minutes, but it takes fourteen minutes. That's incredible. The door is open because a teacher propped it. I mean, there's so many things in this case study that went wrong, um, that it just is a perfect storm for what happened it's unthinkable. But the negligence on the part of the police department is the most unthinkable part of it. It's incredible, even just the response time. Before they're in the building, and not getting into the classroom, which by the way, they ultimately got into by unlocking the door with a janitor's key. What takes you an hour to decide that you should just try unlocking the door? It's insane. Um, So, I mean, it's the same thing. It's it's Scott Israel um, all over again. And if people remember the negligence we learned about in Parkland, it's, it's it, I mean, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what the solution is because we continue to have these problems over and over again, whether it is the shooter themselves or the laid back response time or the laid back response or just the, the insufficient response. And I'll just close by saying when we were talking about this on rising on Friday, um, my co-host Ryan Grimm said something uh, like very poignant. And he was like, we need to like Andy Griffith, Andy would have rushed in there. Um, And he said, Barney Fife would have rushed in there. And that might sound silly, but there's just something so sick and wrong in our country that we don't have men. We don't, I I mean, it's just like, we don't have men. We don't have um, morale in police departments. We don't have communities. There's just so much going wrong. That's overwhelming to even try to figure out for me what this should look like. I have a hard time speaking about it in non-abstract ways.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, I think it's well said because there's only one response to, to I think, this entire story and, and the details that continue to leak out and that's revulsion, um, you know? And, and I think there's a detail that really bothers me when the police are like, well, you know, they, they might've gotten shot. There was active, an active shooter and there was gunfire. Well, yeah, that's a decision you make when you become a, a law enforcement officer. Like you, you put yourself in harm's way. If you're not prepared to do that, don't sign up to wear the badge. Um, And I think that's just baseline, but I think, you know, even more broadly, it speaks to this notion of, you know, something that's I think been creeping since since the, frankly the riots in 2020, which is that the police aren't necessarily going to protect you. I mean, there's a little bit of that good guy with the gun theory that infuses the right. You know, we're always like, oh, as long as somebody has a gun, you know, then then we're safe. And and it's not always true. The police, you know, we we saw the police stand down in the face of riots. You know, we've even seen around the D.C. area, the smash and grab uh, stuff that's been still going on. Right. And the police just haven't done anything. And so I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I think you're gonna see another spike in gun sales, uh, you know, as people begin again to understand that even in the toughest of states, you know, Texas always holds itself up, you know, as sort of the the masculine ethos of America, you know, the, the cowboy, you know, community of the country, you still have men that will cower in the face of what I just can only describe as pure evil, you know, violence perpetrated against children. So, you know, As we debate the Second Amendment, I think again and again we are just our faces are forced into the fact of why it exists. From you know, there's a line from Kyle Rittenhouse to this, um, where people have to stand up and defend themselves. Unfortunately, and thank God we live in a country that protects that right.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and of course uh, we you probably all saw that Canada is basically trying to destroy whatever vestige of a gun industry, gun trade it has there uh, in the wake of this and. First to Josh's narrow question about accountability. I I suspect there are probably some laws on the books in Texas uh, that might point to negligence here, at least by the commanding officer, who it seems like was calling the shots on the ground when this massive, deathly incompetence unfolded. Um, So I suspect that there is some probably legal accountability that will happen there. But whatever is going to be proposed ultimately by the federal government after the DOJ probes this, I shudder to think about what that response will be. And I think my broad takeaway, and I felt this from the start of this story, is the more we learn, the more we see that at every level, there was not only rank incompetence, but deathly incompetence when it comes to, you know, why was this person out and about able to obtain weapons? Where was his family during his childhood? All of the psychosis related issues here, the societal related issues, then to the incompetence of the purported authorities. Uh, And, you know, where was the guard that was supposedly supposed to be posted up at the school uh, that allegedly had been there, but then wasn't, you know, in every single level, there is just rank incompetence here and failure. But the response from the other side to the incompetence is let's assault your natural right to defend yourself. That is the response. And that is a remarkable response, particularly when we're talking about a time where the cops in many cases have stepped back. And they've stepped back in those cities which have the most stringent gun rules and regulations. So the police won't protect you and you're not allowed to protect yourself. And that is the most remarkable part of all of this. In a society with crazed people where you're talking about police backing off, what is the response? Disarm law-abiding Americans in the face of it. Uh, It's a remarkable commentary and a devastating one. And so that note, on that note, I guess I'll, I'll turn to another remarkable and devastating commentary, which is that we just got word of this, uh, the verdict being handed down in the case of Michael Sussman, which was an acquittal, uh, probably not necessarily surprising to uh, viewers and to viewers of and listeners to this podcast. So I'll give kind of my you know brief uh, off the cuff reaction to it. And then I'm curious about your all's reaction to this. As well, as I had written in Newsweek last week, this was a case of Michael Sussman truly going in front of a jury and a judge of his peers here. This was the swamp adjudicating a case of a swamp creature. Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer, the charge of lying about bringing garbage, dirt on this purported link between the Trump Organization and Russian Alpha Bank via server and Trump Tower. Uh, that there were some back channel communications there and that this was part of the whole treasonous Trump-Russia collusion conspiracy. Uh, Michael Sussman took that dirt first to the FBI and later to the CIA, but he was indicted for taking it to the the head counsel for the FBI in a text message the night before. And I'll try to pull up quickly here uh, the exact quote, but this was sort of the ultimate smoking gun. And and durham did not put this in his original indictment which in part hurt his case i believe and this may have been a statute of limitation related which points to potentially incompetence here on the part of sussman or an error clearly so the night before this meeting where he brought this dirt to the fbi counsel, he says jim jim baker he's referring to it's michael sussman i have something time sensitive and sensitive i need to discuss do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow i'm coming on my own not on behalf of a client or company want to help the Bureau. And then the next day he goes into this meeting and Baker testifies, quote, he was 100% confident. Sussman told him in the meeting, he was not there on behalf of a client. He was there. He was representing two people when he brought this dirt to Baker. One, the Hillary Clinton campaign, which, which pushed for the dirt to be unleashed. And two, Rodney Jaffe, who was a tech researcher, a mastermind of the operation to build this dirt. And present it to the campaign and then spin it out both to the government as well as to the media, which they did, as they did with the Steele dossier and other matters. So this was a lie. This was obviously a material lie, because if you say you're not bringing this on behalf of anyone, you're just a good Samaritan who happens to be buddy-buddy with the head counsel for the FBI because you worked in the DOJ for a long time prior to it. And of course, you're representing the Hillary campaign. Uh, It's a lie and it's a material lie to know that you're representing a campaign and bringing, obviously, opposition research to them, misleading them, wasting the DOJ slash FBI's investigatory and prosecutorial resources, etc. Yet he was acquitted. Uh, Why was he acquitted here? Well, again, look who was adjudicating this case. The judge, as I've detailed in this case, in this piece in Newsweek. Uh, Himself was a professional acquaintance of Michael Sussman. The accused, they worked, they overlapped at the Clinton DOJ. Uh, The judge's wife herself contributed $2,700 to the Clinton 2016 campaign. She represents Lisa Page in private practice, who supposedly may be a target of the Durham Special Counsel. And then we have the jury itself, several of whom were Hillary Clinton 2016 donors, it appears. One a spouse worked for 2008 Hillary campaign. Michael Sussman's daughter plays on the team of the daughter of one of the members of the jury. I mean, it's remarkable. It's it only in the swamp could this possibly happen. So what's the, what's the big story here at the end of the day? To my mind, it's that there is no justice when you're talking about the swamp. Judging the swamp. But beyond that, this was a clear blatant case of a lie and a material lie. And even that couldn't be adjudicated. Yet every single person and their mother in Trump world gets destroyed by the law. Even if they're not convicted, they're ruined, they're bankrupted, their careers are over, their reputations are tarnished and smeared. And this is the ultimate in injustice. There's going to be another case in October. Igor Denchenko, the supposed lead researcher behind the Steele dossier, and he's charged, I believe, on five different counts. Uh, and there's indictment. Uh, there's rather perjury and beyond perjury as well here. So we'll see where that case goes. But this, if we're going to get anything out of Durham, it's going to be that we're going to see the corruption and you know the, the machinations of this Hillary Clinton you know, smear campaign against Trump. But in this case itself, Durham's team made the case that the government was sort of duped. In fact, Sussman's team made the opposite case, which was that the government of course knew that Sussman represented the Clinton campaign as he brought the dirt to them. So the defense here admitted that the government was in on this, yet Durham didn't make that case. I think that says it all about where this is going. It's total injustice. And as as I've argued over and over again, ad nauseum, it just guarantees still worse weaponization of the national security and intelligence apparatus going forward because no one pays. And with that, I'll turn it over to everyone else for your kind of rapid reactions here.
0: I mean, I almost, I don't, you know, it's like, I almost don't know what to think because I'm I'm of two minds in a sense, in the way that like, I'm very glad that this, you know, trial took place. I'm glad we know what we know. And I think it's unavoidable, you know, for people that were even marginally paying attention, like how corrupt this system was, how corrupt Hillary Clinton was, uh, you know, all the things that we now know. But on the other hand, the fact that yet again, we're sitting here when someone did something so obviously uh, corruptible and isn't going to jail and nobody's being punished. And that has just been the story over and over and over again, from Lois Lerner to, you know, Kevin Kleinsmith, right, the attorney who like faked the FISA warrant to get in on Carter Page, not being even disbarred for doing so. Right. So it's just over and over and over again. And what does that do? You know, it's like, on one hand, I'm really glad this information is out there. I'm really glad it's, it's in the public eye, but like the fact that nobody's getting punished for it, that really starts to make people believe with concrete evidence that there's two systems of justice in America. Um, you know, there's the DC justice. And then the one that everyone else would be exposed to if they were to do even marginally, you know, a little bit of this. Um, so it's the degrading effect continues.
1: Yeah, it feels like a banana republic. I mean, it's, it, it, it's insane. And there, there's no public outcry, which is sort of what you rely on to check, um, the, to check the excesses here. And when I say that, I mean, it, it, our, is a segment of the public furious about this? yes but it's uh, you have to like know about it in order to be furious about it and nobody knows about this and that's what the like literal deep state is relying on um to cover this stuff up and yeah you sort of have brought the chomsky left together with the um new right in, in following this um but it's a pretty much a total media blackout when they do cover it it's um you know, wrong <laughs> and they have no incentive to cover it uh, for a number of reasons. It, it undercuts their political and partisan goals, but also it, it's an indictment of them. Um, because they got the story wrong and they sort of swallowed whole cloth all of these lies that people in the intelligence community were were telling for years and years and years. So it it isn't just purely, you know, like oligarchic, the Clintons controlled the strings of the media. It's more just like a parallel justice system because the incentives have been so perverted and distorted um, over the years by, I mean, just so many different things, but mostly the ruling class protecting its power and its ability to rule. It's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's shocking to me um, that this is happening in our country, but also at the same time, sort of tragically not shocking. That's just sort of where we are. Um, so that's with that, I'll, I'll kick it over to Josh.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think tragically not shocking is unfortunately my takeaway. And I, I was going to go through some of the you know these particular details about kind of the way that this entire situation with I mean, being seemed rigged from the get-go, but Ben kind of detailed that already, in uh, both on this episode and in his excellent op-ed for Newsweek last week here. But look, Rachel mentioned Lois Lerner. I mean, you know, before Trump got rid of, you know, Jim Comey in 2017, Jim Comey also massively got off the hook with respect to the emails with and Hillary Clinton in the, in the summer of 2016. I remember back in the middle of the Trump campaign writing some blog post to the effect of there are two systems of justice, you know, one for the DC class, one for everyone else. I mean, I wrote that for a blog I don't think exists anymore. So it might have been, you know, somewhere on the Internet archives. But this has been a trend for a very long time now. And I I think the even deeper and darker element here, and this is not something new to this podcast, something we've talked about quite a bit, is that this two systems of justice paradigm is not specifically only and exclusively applied to the rule of law. It also obviously applies to big tech and online speech. It also applies to banking and financial services. I mean, whether it's deplatforming or debanking, this entire notion that there is one set of rules that pertains to the DC establishment, to the ruling class, to Beltway insiders, Then one entirely separate set of rules, whether it is online speech and discourse, whether it is banking and financial services, whether it is access, potentially one day down the road to things like accounting services or medical services. I mean, who again, who knows where this ends, right? And that really is the profoundly scary part. I mean that that is ultimately why there are some people on our side of the aisle who are so black that they use the rhetoric of national divorce because they they simply do not see an end to this madness happening anytime soon. you know I, I'm not necessarily with them at this present state when they reach that particular conclusion, but I totally understand where they're coming from because it seems like with each particular instance, whether it's um, you know Comey in 16 obviously or whether it's Sussman now, it's just we need something to try to turn the tide and you know when Ron DeSantis here in Florida took on Disney in May, that seemed to me like one potential political cultural inflection point moment with, with what we've seen since then, obviously with Netflix, Nexon Mobile, and most recently State Farm try to kind of more get in line. but we need some more data points like that. <laughs> we need some more actions to try to de-black pill the people on our side who I think are rightfully depressed when they see all these all these terrible headlines most recently in the Sussman episode.
0: So I think with that, we can take it around to final thoughts. Um, you know, I can kick us kick us off because I think just to pick up on what Josh said, I think that this is what troubles me the most. I'm not a national divorce proponent necessarily, but it really strikes me that sort of the link between all of our segments is that, you know, there are two people perceive of justice now in, in very different ways. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about how we don't have a consensus on a lot of sort of the. The things that used to drive us forward as a country and justice being one of those sort of virtues that we cannot agree um, on what that looks like anymore, whether it be in the actual justice system, right, when you have obvious examples of political corruption uh, going unpunished to something like, you know, Joshua Katz at Princeton, right, there are people actively graduating from our elite tiers of universities who think justice is destroying someone's life a second time over. And what does that portend? Uh, from the country, what does it portend when the biggest corporate interests in America can continue to make completely incoherent policy and and legal arguments and get away with it? And so, I I don't know, you know, I think. I often fall back on, on, to maybe reassure myself, and maybe this is naive, but I do think that Americans as a people are pretty smart once they sort of figure out what's going on. And you know potentially that is what you're starting to see when, when tide, the tide turns with Disney, when it, the tide turns with some of these corporations realizing there's no market outside of their own you know handful of employees for a lot of these positions. And they recognize that to do business in America, they have to sort of revert back to neutrality. Maybe that's where the pendulum will swing. But in the meantime, how many heads are going to be taken off? you know, as the pendulum continues to swing in one direction. So I think, again, this, this whole episode has really just been another example of how we are so divided on questions of um, just basic natural principles that you have to have some cohesion and unity on to run a country.
1: And, you know, what's interesting is I don't even know if that divide exists or how strongly it exists um, outside of elite circles that have amassed so much control over our politics. I mean, I think if you explained what happened to assessment to a group of, you know, 20 people in uh, from states around the country that work outside politics um, and maybe just follow the news as much as they can, but aren't obsessed with it, they would be appalled um, and would think it was absolutely wrong single level that we know it's wrong on. And I think the same thing would be true of Joshua Katz. Um, And I think, you know, you would find nuance, like abortion and their position on guns. Um, So, uh, again, like just focusing on Katz and Sussman, I I don't think the country shares the elite's definitions of justice in any of these cases. Um, And I think what's truly sad is that the people who define justice in that way um, have amassed so much power that they basically break the system in their favor. Um, And because the media, our fourth estate, is complicit, um, it will just continue to happen and happen and happen. Um, And that's where we are.
2: Let me just say, I'd say the kind of perverse silver lining in this is that it seems that the more millions of Americans are uh, woke to the wokeness of our institutions and how corrupted they are, uh, that the ruling quest fears the resistance coming, but consequently they act in more brazen and tyrannical ways in response. And maybe that's delegitimizing, maybe that's gonna lead to some kind of self-correction in the system. But on the other hand, to Rachel's point, how many heads are gonna roll in the interim? And I, I see it only getting worse the more that people are awake to what's being perpetrated against them. Um, yeah, I was glad that uh, Emily talked about the fact that the, the media here, you know, is is implicated and that this is a self-indictment of them, not just a self-indictment in terms of their lack of coverage, but actually how they were in on this. And one thing that was revealed in the Sussman case was that there was at least one member of the media, at least according to the testimony, that was an FBI informant in the case. Um, And, you know, the media were conduits for the narrative that the deep state wanted spun and that Hillary's team wanted spun as if they're distinct. I mean, they're really not distinct. It's just one's a public sector actor and one's a private sector actor here. But, of course, they all wanted Trump gone and dead. And they were willing to spin these stories and entertain these fantasies. Again, like we weren't in the case. I mean, silver lining of uh, Durham for whatever happens. If, if, If there's no more no more trial and no more indictments hidden that we don't know about today. We know that the seventh floor that is the senior rank of the FBI itself was perfectly fine with digging to the ends of the earth on what they knew was dirt, what the rank and file agents knew was dirt and garbage from the start here. Um, But, you know, I look at this and from the media's perspective, is it an indictment of them because they got it wrong or because they got it right? Like from the media's perspective, do they believe that they got this story right by pushing forth the dirt spun also by the government? because it was in service of the greater good, which was taking down or trying to take down the bad orange man. Uh, and same goes for the government officials and the fact that they pay no consequence for it. Again, to me, that's the real problem here is that this just guarantees worse injustices. What was unthinkable yesterday becomes the norm today. And we keep seeing this perpetuate itself. So to me, you know, the litmus test for leaders, future leaders has to be, what is your plan to ensure that there is a justice system in this country anymore? What are you going to do to actually create balance again? Because looking at the institutions today, why would you ever expect that anyone's going to get a fair trial who dares to dissent from what the prevailing ruling class orthodoxy is? I mean, I think you'd be crazy to think that you're going to be treated the same way as a Michael Sussman would be treated in a court of law. And then what kind of country do you have if not? And you look at what Republicans do. Julie Kelly raised this point the FBI is asking for uh, incremental funds next year, growing their budget. And there was zero pushback from Republican senators in hearing about that. What is your job if you're a senator other than oversight and controlling the purse? And if you're not going to use that power against these corrupted agencies at the highest ranks, then what's the point of having a Congress if it's just a rubber stamp? So this is it's incumbent upon Republican leaders to care about this issue and actually show that with concrete policies. If you don't, you're unfit. You don't understand what time it is or you don't care and you're complicit in it.
3: So I guess my final thought is picking up on something that Emily mentioned during our Uvalde follow up segment, which is I don't remember exactly how Emily phrased it, but it is this notion of, you know, how we uh, how how men, how grown up men can be in that situation like those 19 police officers and not take action to protect these children who are being wantonly slaughtered. And, you know, Jesse Kelly had a tweet about this Um we basically said, like, you know, uh, how do we raise boys, right, to to be the kind of person that charges into that classroom and not stands on the sideline there? And then I also think back to this really compelling Twitter thread, I thought, from The Blaze's Ali Beth Stuckey, who I had on my Newsweek podcast last week in the aftermath of the shooting, where Ali Beth basically said, we are horribly failing young men of America. She was focusing not necessarily on the police Conduct there is just focusing on on the shooter and the fact that all these loser loner you know murderous psychopaths oftentimes end up being these you know late teens early twenties men. But you know focusing on the question of how we actually raise men. I mean, I guess at a kind of deeper kind of philosophical level, when I see nineteen police officers standing outside an elementary school classroom where children are being slaughtered, and do not run in there, do not run in there to try to save lives. My biggest takeaway is that we are failing as not necessarily just as individuals—we're failing at that too—but also as a nation. Because to kind of go like full Yoram Hazoni here, and this is not on Squad, obviously, to go to kind of go like the full like definition of nationhood, it ultimately depends upon the interdependent mutual bonds of loyalty that that alone can sustain a citizenry, right? Think back to the Civil War, obviously. I mean, uh, we were fighting, uh, or at least the Union forces were fighting to preserve the Union, of course, but also to kind of you know, eradicate chattel slavery, to pursue kind of natural justice on behalf of those interdependent bonds of substantive loyalty. When you look at grown men who are not going to charge a classroom to go in there to save the lives of innocent children, that notion has just failed we no longer have those bonds that sustain us when you are not willing to risk your lives, let alone risk your lives with 18 other police officers to do so. So I guess that's my biggest takeaway there. I mean, we're not gonna have all the answers on this podcast there, but we surely need to do a better job, right? Uh, Obviously there's been so much literature written about the rise of kind of fatherless homes and the, the correction between fatherless homes and these psychopathic mass shooters seems to be a pretty direct and positive correlation as far as I'm concerned there. But how we can better raise young men to be the kind of police officers who will charge that classroom, not stand there on the sidelines like total you know, cowardly you know, words I don't want to use in this podcast. Um, I think that is kind of one question that the listeners and viewers of this podcast, as well as the four of us and everyone out there, really, for that matter, should be thinking long and hard about over the next few months.
0: Yeah, to not leave us on a totally note complete note of despair. (laughs) You know, I think Josh's points are well taken. There's work here to be done. Um, and I think the country in many ways and the people who make it up, especially our young men tend to be on the brink of nihilism on so many, in so many areas. And I think it's our job and our duty to, to force the conversation back, uh, to pull them back from the brink and to pull the country back from the brink. So I am happy to be joined in that endeavor by all of you. So on behalf of Ben, Josh, and Emily, we'll see you on the next NatCon squad.